Hello and welcome back to Rewildology, the show that explores conservation, travel, and rewilding the planet. I'm your host, Brooke Mitchell, conservation biologist and adventure traveler. I cannot believe we're already at the end of April in 2023 and sliding so fast into May. How the heck did that happen? This month, we talked about a river in dire straits, writing impactful stories, and coexisting with bears. If you missed an episode and would like to hear a little snippet before diving into the full thing, listen to these highlights and then go back to the episode, or all three, that piques your interest the most. Also, in case you missed it, I want to remind you of the listener meetup happening on May 16th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. If you're available, I would love for you to join. Don't worry, participating is completely free. Please email your RSVP to hello at rewildology.com or DM on any of the show's social media accounts. I can't wait to meet all of you. Okay, back to April's recap. Let's dive in. First in April, we sat down with Dave Shewalter, professional conservation photographer and author. We discussed the Colorado River and why he wrote his new book, Living River. Anyways, let's get to the main topic of today. So you are an established, a respected, a published conservation photographer. And I'm sure with your passion, you could have done any conservation issue that your heart set out to do and tell an incredible story around it. Why did you decide to dedicate the last six years of your life to the Colorado River? That's... <laughs> The beginning is kind of funny. Um, so I was in Washington, D.C. to do a presentation at the Audubon National Meeting in 2015. I had one pre-press copy of my Sage Spirit book. So that book wasn't even out in the world yet. I was certainly not looking for another project. But I was attuned to the plight of rivers, particularly Western rivers. And... At that meeting, I was invited to a breakout session for the Western Rivers Action Network, which is Audubon's multi-layered campaign for rivers, because, of course, in arid environments and, and everywhere, birds birds go to the water, right? All the animals go to the water. So it, it sounds funny that a bird group would be advocates for rivers, but but everything starts with habitat, right? No habitat, no animals, and so forth. Anyway, so I went to this Western Rivers meeting and and I was just so impressed by how layered and how deep this this campaign was. I, I was not impressed by the visuals. And I went up to <laughs> Brian, the presenter afterwards and said, I'm Dave, you know, I maybe I can help a little bit. And I was there with my good friend, Allison Holleran, who's the executive director of Audubon Rockies. And she says she has a way of giving me like gentle nudges, like, you know, Dave, you, you might think about this for your next project, that sort of thing. Left D.C. kind of thinking about all of that. And shortly thereafter, I heard an expert say, a watershed expert say the Colorado River is dead. And mm. and I thought, damn, that that's just not right. That's not my experience. You know, Marla and I have been roaming these <clears throat> these mountains and the wild places in Colorado for a lot of years by then. And that wasn't my experience. Everywhere there's flow, there is life. There is abundant, vibrant, dynamic life in flow wherever rivers are running, you know? And so I just got kind of ticked off. And, and I had this thought that 
in the beginning that we must always have rivers flowing through us. Then, you know, there's 40 million people in this watershed and every one of us owes everything we have to the Colorado River. And so then it became a process of, of talking to folks. And, and I was at that point, I was doing a lot of presentations and traveling around for my sage book. But I had I had the Colorado River on my mind and and those early meetings and, and sort of inputs that you're hearing in the media. That was the beginning and and so it, it started with that idea of rivers flowing through us. And, and then about the interconnectedness of rivers and one thing led to another and I, you know, the other thing I thought Brooke too was when I when I got serious about maybe doing a story, I thought nobody's going to ever care. If all we show them is bathtub rings around reservoirs. Yes. And there's now now you see it. And I, I think we're all kind of being exposed to all of these stories about the Colorado River being a dying river. And it's true in the sense that we're having difficulty delivering water to people and to agriculture, particularly in the lower part of the Colorado River Basin. But the water still has to flow to get to that lower part and wherever it flows, there is life. And that's the part that I find really interesting. And what made you decide on a book with how many different media types there are out there nowadays? Hmm. What hmm. was it specifically about a book that drew you to just print media? And like, this is how I want to tell the story. Yeah, I agree with you. There's there's a lot of ways to tell a story and, and they're all good. I'm just so I had already done one book with Braided River and I'm kind of wired to to studying places over time. I think so many stories, you know, particularly now in this moment on the Colorado River watershed, I can look at a story and go, well, they didn't spend any time there. You know, they there's no depth to these to these stories. And and for me, where it's at is to go back to places over and over and over and to photograph with intention and to get to know the people and the place in a meaningful way. And then I can talk about it. You know, if I go someplace for three or four days, I can do a quick story probably and do an interview, but I'm not gonna have that, that depth of understanding. And so in this case, I talked to Braided River, Helen Cherulo is the executive director. She is amazing and she, Braided River, is the only book producer who all they do is publish conservation photography books as foundations for long-term campaigns. And I think there's just a lot of a lot of power in that. There's a lot of potential to bring more people to the issue, to the story, and and to get into the all of the layered depth of, of that story. And all of that intrigues me. And the idea of building a story over time, I think is it's just a really cool way to work. And I don't even yeah. know if I answered your question, but to me, <laughs> to me, I think books matter. I think books are a, um, they, they capture a period of time, right? One last thing about books is there's a permanence and, and we're in a society where everything is fleeting and it's bits and clicks and, you know, people dancing on TikTok and, and then you have something that has a permanence to it. And, and there's a, there's something foundational and weighty about having a book in hand that you don't get with other ephemeral types of media. I use the word foundation a lot, so does Braided River, but 
they're the only ones that do what they do and they're really good at it. And you can take the book and you can create other assets, right? You can produce video pieces that tie into the story and go out and give talks. You can have photo exhibits that travel around. Um, it's all scalable. And that's that adds layers upon layers to the power of a book. So, and that's that's how Braided River looks at it is it's all scalable. And we have like one author, Florian Schultz, he did a book and an IMAX movie about the oh, earth. Wow. So, that, so that's big scale stuff, right? You can, a book can take you a lot of places. Second in April, we met Rachel Wambui to chat about how to create impactful conservation stories. So to you, what is nature storytelling and what what makes a good story? Like you just said, your goal is to make the person that lives with this wildlife in this ecosystem care because that is what's actually going to make conservation action, which I've said so many times on this show. Like, how do we make people care? Because if people care, then they will have passion and they will protect the area that, that they love. And that is how we're going to, just like I said, save, quote unquote, save, protect, keep our wildlife and our natural natural spaces here. So what is nature storytelling to you? And maybe what are some elements that make a good story? Like how do you approach essentially your work and what you do? How do you do that? Oh, that's a great question. So it actually depends on what the, the story is. I, I suppose in the first place, it's coming across a subject that really interests me. Uh, I'm going to talk about, for example, the last short film that I made with, with another filmmaker, Tuku. His name is Tuku Kamau. So uh, we co-directed, we did, it was just a, a crew of two and we did everything <laughs> and I did the narration. And the reason why I was attracted to that story, so in asking what makes a good story, it, 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 it's for me something that hasn't really been talked about, something that I can talk about from a very different perspective. And so we had a choice to choose between uh, one of three stories. The reason I chose this story, which has to do with vultures, actually, so why it's necessary that we save vultures, is number one, because the vulture, come on. I, I don't think I had ever really thought about what does a vulture have to do with anything? They're these, these you know, large animals that I know, birds that I, I think their work is to eat carcass. So what? But then the, the more I did the research and the more you realize just how much, how useful the vultures are to the landscape, even to to us as, as humans, if first of all, they are endangered. And if you start thinking about a world without vultures, you realize that that means a world full of disease because no any other, I don't think there's any other animal that can get rid of carcass as much as vultures do. We will quite literally have a carcass problem if we did and if we didn't have vultures and that would mean a world full of disease um, that 
we can we can't digest but vultures can so just that realization and just to see how endangered they were it was the beginning of like a very huge mind shift for me and for me if a story strikes a chord with me it has a it has a tendency to strike a chord with with somebody else but but also the setting so this vulture story was set up was set in the mara and and the premise of it was one of the reasons that the vultures are are dying at such an alarming rate is because of poisoning so they eat poisoned carcass because some some pastoralists or some herders will poison carcass so that the lions that that come to 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 the boma or to the kraal to the little pen where they put their their cattle once they eat the carcass they die and then the vulture will come and eat the same carcass and you the lions will die and so will the uh the vultures that eat the carcass and so for me the reason why this story was very important for me is because previously if you saw if you saw such a story it would be like oh my god these pastoralists why are they doing this to these poor vultures right to these poor lions but actually with me i sat down with one of these one of the herders who actually just that previous night there there had been at one of these cows had been attacked just when we were we were on locations like actually come come i go show you and i watched this grown man shed tears because of his cow that and the cow was there it was dying and and what do you this is very painful and this is a man said it's like it's painful it's like i want you to imagine like if you woke up today and someone had wiped out your bank account <laughs> right yes that yeah that painful and it's the same sort of pain where you you will be pushed to do some stuff that sounds irrational but but when you think about it this is not an issue about who's like pastoralist poisoning lions and it's actually an issue of habitats you know it's a look at just how much the diminishing habitats all the the boundaries that we have put i mean decades ago masa is used to be able to coexist very well with 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 lions and and you know they used to roam that land freely and now that is not something that they can do anymore so you may be one may be may be quick to think oh my god this masa is were killing lions but actually no it's like let's look at how much the landscape dynamics have shifted over the years and how what kind of impact that is having on on our lives and at what scale to a point where you know other species are being affected so that was the other thing like the nuance there's a nuance of a story <laughs> and but also like one of the one of the people who's working to actually uh to actually save save who is acting as a bridge between these two the the community and also like the scientific side that is that is trying to study especially birds of prey in the mara ecosystem 
he's a Maasai who was born and bred, went to school, and now he's a raptors biologist from the Mara. And again, that was very fascinating for me because in terms of representation, you know, mostly you'll see those stories and it will be, you'll have, you know, the scientist or the expert will be someone who's coming in from, or actually someone who's been interviewed from, from a university office somewhere in Bristol or something. And I'm like, why is this expert sitting in, <laughs> in, in Europe? You know what I mean? Right. Um, yeah and 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 so that was fascinating for me to see one of the the main characters of that short film Lemain he's from the community he understands where this this man is coming from and he understands the science he loves i mean he he's in charge of all the birds of prey in the mara the whole ecosystem wow so it, it was such a fascinating sort of mixture of things and and that's what made it very interesting for me there's representation there's uh, me being welcomed to actually interact with the nuance of the story and to invite people to to see it's not really what you think it is i'm inviting you to think about it more and voices it's also important for me for myself and my partner, my filming partner, Thuku, for us as local voices to tell that story as well, because I think it came out different with us telling it, as opposed to if it had been told, you know, from someone who did not understand the local context and, 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 and all of that. And so that matters. I'm not talking about exclusivity um, in telling stories, I'm talking about inclusivity, actually, because for the longest time, that's what has been missing. Uh, so we are not saying, oh, my God, we don't want you to tell. No, we are saying for some time what we have come to notice and we are beginning to get an agency around is that we have not been included. And maybe also us, we have not risen up and actually taken the agency with with our natural spaces and with our wildlife and with actually telling our own stories. And that's kind of what I feel that the movement, there's a very sort of movement that is brewing around the African conservation voices landscape right now. It's like, yeah, I want to go back and tell, talk about this plant that grows in my village you know and and that's that's been 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 amazing um it's been absolutely amazing yeah lastly in april we sat down with stuart breck phd to discuss the science behind coexisting with black bears and grizzly bears in north america i think most people know what at least bears are and from those of us that live in North America, and even if you don't, maybe you've heard about them, these bears can get quite into trouble <laughs> because they are such generalists. And if you go to anywhere in like the Smokies or national parks, there's all these bear signs and bear smart trash cans and, and all of these different methods to try to both save bears and get them away from people because they are really good at becoming problem bears or things like that. So... What did you learn? Maybe maybe set this up. How did your Black Bear project come to be? And what did you and your team do and learn when you started to try to work on this human Black Bear conflict problem? 
Well, that, that journey started in Yosemite National Park, where when they called me to help, they were sort of at the height of massive bear conflicts, massive being just they occurring daily. And a lot of that was bears breaking into cars. And the park had really did a magnificent job of reducing that dramatically, uh, reducing the break-ins to... Uh, to campers, foods, and things like that. And, it, and there's a lot that goes into that story. But, And I had a very small role in that. But the experience led me to look at my home state of Colorado and realize that all the problems that this national park were experiencing were starting to manifest in areas that are not national parks, but are that are the urban and and suburban towns and rural areas throughout Colorado where bears bears exist. And it was about 2002 or three where I made a call to a biologist in the state that was also seeing this problem coming. And so we combined forces. So it was my agency and then Colorado Parks and Wildlife, and we started a urban black bear study in the town of Aspen, which was, uh, is, and was <laughs> kind of a focal area for black bear conflict. And in these kind of urban, if you will, or town-like settings. And so we embarked on a six-year project that was really focused on understanding black bear behavior associated with this problem of urban development and the garbage that was available in these urban environments and how bears were utilizing that. And then that study morphed into uh, a study in Durango, another six-year study that was really sort of the Colorado Parks and Wildlife, one of the researchers, Heather Johnson, who is just a remarkable person and remarkable researcher. She took over. I was behind the scenes supporting that work. And, um, and that project focused on not only better understanding of bear behavior, but also looking at what is the influence of these towns and pop on the bear population, which was a really interesting question. It's a hard question to get at, but that was the focus. How are, how are we influencing the bear population, as well as some pretty big experiments on what do we do? What happens if we put out garbage cans that are really bear resistant? How do how does that work in terms of minimizing conflict? Which was you know that's really the ultimate goal is how do we minimize conflict? So we're combining all that together in these different in two different long term studies that work sort of dribbled along after 2016, the heart of the Durango study was done. We did a little bit of follow-up work and then we are now working, I have a graduate student who's working more at some kind of policy level and uh, questions related to how well does uh, this sort of an experiment that's occurring in Colorado where the governor's office made available a million dollars to 
different towns and cities in Colorado that were experiencing bear problems. And that money is, is supposed to go towards cleaning up these towns, evaluating like how does, you know, the making this kind of resource available, how, how do towns respond? And then are we being effective at minimizing conflict? So I have a student that's focused on that right now. Nice. And so let's go back to the, maybe some of the answers that came out of these long-term projects. So what was the main driver for conflict? And then maybe were there clear solutions that came out of that that have been tried and true? Or is that still, is that work still ongoing? I, I guess, what are, what are the solutions to what you guys discovered? Yeah. Well, first of all, there's no one solution, but there's some clear things that, you know, from our work that showed, all right, this is the direction we need to go. But backing up a little bit, some of the drivers, you know, there's two real key drivers. One, of course, is, is the availability of what we call anthropogenic resources. And that's just sort of a, a sophisticated way, if you will, of saying there's a lot of garbage out on the landscape. And that garbage availability is one of the primary drivers of bears coming into into these towns. And so we kind of knew that it's sort of intuitive, right? But we really wanted to understand just the extent that that food source was important. And so as we were looking at that over, over the course of 12 years of studying this, we've had a couple, we had a couple years where the natural food supply for bears was really limited and that's usually driven by a, some kind of climatic event or a weather mm -hmm. event where you have a late spring freeze that really kills off the the berries and the acorns and these natural foods that are available to bears so you you put those two things together the availability of all this kind of garbage and human oriented food in these town like situations and you you, you layer over that a natural food failure that's when you really see the problems erupt. And, and those problems can be statewide or they can be real local. And mm -hmm. so you might see a town that is humming along with very low conflict, but then you have a food failure that is sort of a local phenomenon and they can have really bad problems. And, and so, um, but ultimately what's driving that is, is there's this alternative food source that bears are pretty aware of, very savvy. They understand what coming into urban environments. I don't. Most bears don't want to do that. Our data showed very clearly that bears that would come in and forage in urban environments one year, if there was food available the next year, a lot of bears wouldn't come back. So That's they really would, good to know. Yeah, it is. It, really important. That's not necessarily always the case. Sometimes you get individuals that they're just like, yeah, I'm coming to town. I'm going to stay in town. <laughs> um, unfortunately, those bears end up usually being removed at some point and yeah, euthanized. Yeah. So those are, you know, those are probably two of the key drivers there that that's very clear. One of the things that was real important was, well, 
what is the impact of these that dynamic of food availability and natural food failures? How does that impact bear populations? That was a really important outcome of the Durango study in that one of the things we demonstrated was mortality goes way up during those bad food years. So the mortality, uh, one of the highest, one of the most important mortalities was bears getting run over. So, yeah. And just coming into town is, is riskier for bears. The number of bears that get euthanized increases. Some of the hunter harvest might increase a little bit, but one of the biggies is just that it's, it's a little bit more dangerous place, you know, all the roads for bears. And so the mortality increased. It was in Durango, one of the surprising findings was that the local bear population decreased remarkably during a bad food year. Wow. Yeah. So over 50%, which is a big, that's a big drop in the bear population. Yeah. That's massive. Yeah. So it was, for me, it highlighted that there's a lot more to this story than just conflict. It's impacts the bear populations, but it's also impacts to the, to the biologists working on this problem. They end up spending an inordinate amount of time trying to solve these problems. It can be highly emotional. No one likes euthanizing bears, but that becomes part more commonly part of the equation. There's impacts to the people in the uh, urban environment. You know, anyway, so there, there's a lot of dynamics that would argue if we can reduce this from happening by preventing the desire for bears to come into these urban areas, that's a much preferable solution. And the way to do that is just to reduce garbage, or at least that's a really important, significant first step. So that's where a lot of the focus is now, is how do we reduce this availability of of food that's really inappropriate for bears? And that is it, a snapshot of April's wide-ranging episodes. If you have a question about any of these episodes, please submit it in the Rewildologist Facebook group. As always, I want to thank you for being a part of the Rewildology community. If you'd like to support the show, some zero-cost ways include subscribing to the podcast on your favorite streaming app, leaving a rating and review to boost the algorithm, which will present the podcast to more listeners, signing up for the weekly Rewildology newsletter at rewildology.com, subscribing to the YouTube channel, and following the show on your favorite social media app. If you'd like to financially support the show and help us keep these stories on the airwaves, Consider making a monetary donation at the website or purchase a piece of swag to show off your Rewildology love. At least 10% of proceeds from this show will be donated to our conservation partners. I'd also like to thank Focusrite for powering the podcast sound. If you'd like to see the Focusrite gear we use to record the show, head on over to Rewildology.com and check out Nature Podcasting under the Resources tab. Until next time, friends. Together. We will rewild the planet. Hey, thanks again for listening to this episode of Rewildology. If you like what you heard, hit that subscribe button to never miss a future episode. Do you have a cool environmental organization, travel story, or research that you'd like to share? Let me know at rewildology.com. Until next time, friends, together we will rewild the planet.